I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. (music) Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. And welcome to part six, the final part of Clear Shakespeare, Julius Caesar. We've made it at last. Now we're finally going to see what happens to Julius Caesar. Just kidding, he got killed like an hour ago. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. Please go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. And if you really enjoy it, please leave a good review. I'd also really appreciate it if you could kick in a few bucks to help make this podcast possible. It takes a lot of time and energy on my part, and any support you can provide would be amazing. Go to clearshakespeare.com slash support. Thanks a lot. So as Act 5, the final act of this play begins, the opposing forces are converging on this place, Philippi. And it's strange that this very Roman play would end far away from Rome. But that's where we're ending up. And it's going to end with a grand battle scene in Philippi. But because Shakespeare's theater is a language theater and not an epic theater, because it doesn't have a lot of special effects at its disposal, what you're going to find in a lot of his battle scenes is a kind of cross-cutting effect. You'll see a short scene with one side and a short scene with the other, reacting to what just happened off stage. So instead of seeing thousands of soldiers cutting each other to pieces on the field of battle, what you see instead is these small groups of them reacting to something that just happened. But before we even start the battle, Act 5, Scene 1 reintroduces the sides that are going to be fighting. First we see Octavius and Antony, their side. Lepidus has sort of gone by the wayside at this point. And they come in with their army and Octavius says to Antony, Now, Antony, our hopes are answered. Answered here isn't just neutral, it seems to have some positive cast to it, like our hopes are fulfilled or replied to favorably, almost like their wish has been granted. He says, you said the enemy would not come down, but keep the hills in upper regions. So you told me the enemy wasn't going to come down because they were keeping the hills. Keeping like holding or staying in the hills and the upper regions. Brutus and Cassius had the high ground, but apparently they've come down out of that high ground to meet them on the field of battle. So you said they were going to stay up there? It proves not so. So it turns out not to be that way. Their battles are at hand. Battles here meaning their armies, their fighting forces, they're at hand, they're nearby. Remember, this is exactly the reason that Cassius didn't want to fight the battle, because it gave an advantage to Octavius and Antony's side, and threw away the advantage that their side had. So the other army is nearby. They mean to warn us at Philippi here, answering before we do demand of them. Warn not in our modern sense, but here meaning like confront or challenge. They're going to attack us here at Philippi. Answering, there's that word answer again like responding, in this sense, like attacking, before we do demand of them. Demand of, like, ask for a battle, i.e. launch our attack. So they're attacking us before we even ask to attack them. This is working out great for us. And Antony replies, Tut, I am in their bosoms, and I know wherefore they do it. I like this word tut. It's any sort of expression of dismissal, like please or come on. Tut. You can really hear it. He says, I am in their bosoms. Here, bosoms mean something like hearts, literally in their chests. It's a way of saying, I know their inner thoughts. But he's basically saying, like, I'm inside their hearts. I can read their minds. And I know wherefore they do it. I know why they do it. I know why they've diverged from the way I thought it was going to go. They could be content to visit other places and come down with fearful bravery, thinking by this face to fasten in our thoughts that they have courage. So they could be content to visit other places. He's implying that they would rather be somewhere else. So he's defending his old thinking in a way. He's saying they actually don't want to attack us. They'd rather be somewhere else. But instead, they come down with fearful bravery. I like that kind of oxymoron of fearful bravery. 
So fearful could mean like terrifying, like inspiring fear, in which case that would be bravery. But I actually really like the oxymoron version, the conflicting version, which is like a show of bravery that masks their own fear. So deep down, they're actually really afraid of us, but they're doing this big blustering move to try to scare us off. Thinking by this face, face like an outward show, a kind of put on appearance, almost like a mask. So by that big outward demonstration, they're going to fasten in our thoughts. I like that expression, fasten in our thoughts, like establish the idea in our minds that they have courage. You can also hear the sounds of that, face and fasten. So they're going to put on this big show like they're brave, but tis not so. I like that little addendum. Yeah, they're not actually going to affect us. We're not going to be scared by this. And then Antony's interrupted. His line is punctuated by a messenger arriving. He says, prepare you, generals. The enemy comes on in gallant show. So get ready. The enemy comes on in gallant show. Gallant like splendid or impressive. Like they're making a real show of it. Which would seem to back up Antony's theory that they're just trying to present a face of bravery. Their bloody sign of battle is hung out and something to be done immediately. Their bloody sign of battle. Bloody like blood red. And sign like a banner. It could also be bloody in the sense that it's a war banner, so it's predicting bloodshed. So they've hung out their war signs and something to be done immediately. Something will be done or something is about to be done immediately. Something's gonna happen. You can also really hear the sounds of bloody battle. The alliteration locks in the impact of that. And Antony hears the news and he says, Octavius, lead your battle softly on upon the left hand of the even field. So lead your battle here, lead your fighting force, your army, softly, softly like cautiously or slowly, on upon the left hand of the even field, like the left side of the battlefield. So he's just setting up tactics. But there's tension. Octavius replies, Upon the right hand I keep thou the left. So Antony says, Upon the left hand, and Octavius replies, upon the right hand. And notice that weird little I after it. In part, it's because Shakespeare is trying to exactly parallel the structure that Antony just used in the previous line. So the line has to start with upon the right hand, comma, I, like I will go. Keep thou the left, you stay on the left side. And we don't know if Shakespeare was intending to write his Antony and Cleopatra play as a sequel when he wrote this play, Julius Caesar. It's still a few years away at this point, but he definitely knows that there is a future of disagreement between these two characters coming up. So he's seeding that dissension right here, saying, don't tell me to stand on the left side. I'm going to be on the right side. You take the left. I don't know. Maybe left is bad luck. And Antony's pretty confused by that. He says, why do you cross me in this exigent? So why do you cross me? Why do you contradict or challenge me in this exigent? Exigent means like a moment of need, a critical time. Like this is a really important time. Why are you crossing me now? And Octavius echoes him again. He says, I do not cross you, but I will do so. So he's saying, I'm not crossing you. I'm not like challenging you or anything, but I will do so. Like I have the right to do that whenever I want to. This is a real foreshadowing of the kind of disagreements they're going to get into in the future. And ultimately, it's a pretty minor disagreement. It doesn't make a huge amount of difference who's on the right side and who's on the left. But this is really Octavius sort of for the first time in the play, putting down his mark and saying, I'm a real person with real ideas too. Just because I happen to be young doesn't mean I don't know what I'm doing. You can't just push me over. And then the other side enters. Maybe there's a big presentation with lots of marching and music. In comes Brutus and Cassius and both their armies. And Brutus has the first word. He says, they stand and would have parley. So he's not talking to Octavius and Antony yet. He's just talking to Cassius. He says, they stand. In other words, they wait. They're not moving. And they would have parley. Parley is like a meeting between enemy forces to discuss terms, either before or after a battle. It's talking instead of fighting. So they want to talk. 
And Cassius says, stand fast, Titinius. Stand fast, like stand firmly where you are. So he's kind of leaving the army with Titinius for a while. We must out and talk. We must out. We have to go out between the two armies. Parley usually happens in the kind of empty battlefield between the two armies before the battle starts. We're just going to go out and discuss terms for how this thing is going to work, and then we'll go back to our army and start fighting. And at the same time they're talking, Octavius and Antony are having a conversation of their own. Octavius says, Mark Antony, shall we give sign of battle? Like, should we make a move? Should we threaten them in some way? Should we start the battle? But Antony replies, no, Caesar, we will answer on their charge. Oh, this is really loaded. For the first time, he calls him Caesar. Because remember, Octavius had taken on the name of Julius Caesar as a kind of tribute to his uncle. But what that also achieves is kind of taking on the mantle of Julius Caesar. Now Caesar lives in Octavius. And it's really interesting to see Antony, who was really close to the original Caesar, now calling Octavius by the same name. So he says, no, let's not give sign of battle. We will answer on their charge. In other words, we'll react or respond when they attack, when they advance. So let them go first. And he says, make forth, like go forward. The generals would have some words. The generals Cassius and Brutus would, they want to have some words with you. And Octavius, just like Cassius just did, turns to the guys behind him and says, stir not until the signal. So stir not, don't move until the signal, until we give the signal. So nobody do anything yet, we're going to go talk. And they meet up in the middle and Brutus has the first words. He says, words before blows. Is it so, countrymen? And notice again, at this incredibly serious moment in the play, the form we're getting here is wit. It's the kind of stuff that belongs much more in a comedy. So words before blows. We're going to talk before we fight. Is it so, countrymen? That word countrymen, which we've certainly heard before in the big speeches in the middle of the play, seems to really indicate that this is a civil war. And Octavius, who's still a little bit of a teenager, replies, not that we love words better, as you do. So yeah, we're going to talk with you, but it's not like we love words better than blows. You're the one who likes talking. We like fighting. And Brutus takes his cue from that word better. He says, good words are better than bad strokes, Octavius. So you can see that antithesis of good words and bad strokes. Here we have strokes instead of blows, like sword strokes, in other words, violence. And bad strokes here can be like violence for bad reasons, like unsupported. He's really implying that Octavius's reason for fighting isn't very good. So better good words than your bad strokes. And Antony wants in on the fun too. He takes his cue from bad strokes and says, in your bad strokes, Brutus, you give good words. So in your bad strokes, when you're violent for a bad reason, you give good words. You still talk good. Uh-oh. Witness the hole you made in Caesar's heart, crying, long live, hail Caesar. So witness, consider as an example of giving good words while you make bad strokes, the hole you made in Caesar's heart. Remember you stabbed that guy in the heart? And all the while you were doing that, you were crying out, long live, hail Caesar. It's a hell of a thing to cry out, long live, when you're stabbing somebody in the heart. And Cassius doesn't even wait for him to get through with the verse line. He jumps into it. He says, Antony, the posture of your blows are yet unknown, but for your words, they rob the Hybla bees and leave them honeyless. So Cassius reaches all the way back to the beginning of this exchange for his cue. Remember words before blows? So he says, Antony, the posture of your blows, posture like the quality or nature or even effectiveness, it's still not known how effective your blows are going to be. But as for your words... Well, your words, they rob the Hybla bees. Hybla is a town in Sicily that's famous for its honey, so it has the most famous bees in the world. So your words are so sweet, and maybe so sticky, 
that they take all the honey away from the Hybla bees. That's a lot of honey. So remember, Antony has been putting himself across as a guy who just, you know, speaks right on, doesn't know how to talk very well. And Cassius is finally calling him on that. He's saying, you're a famous talker, actually. Don't pretend like you're not. You have honeyed words. And Antony, in turn, interrupts him. He says, not stingless, too. So Cassius just undermined whether he could fight or not, but he says, I'm actually not stingless. Stingless in the sense of having the capacity for violence, like a stinging bee. And Brutus takes his cue from that word stingless and says, oh yes, and soundless too. So not only that, you've left them soundless. You've taken away the bee's sound for yourself, for you have stolen their buzzing. Buzzing here like talking, especially kind of empty, mindless talk. Actually, the passage in Shakespeare this most resembles is the first meeting of Catherine and Petruchio in The Taming of the Shrew. They also use this buzzing bee and stinging bee metaphor all over the place. So it's funny to see these two, you know, important Roman enemies arguing like lovers. So he's calling him a buzzer, a mindless talker. And he says, you very wisely threat before you sting. You threat before you sting, like you threaten with words before you attack. And there's some debate also about whether this wisely here is sarcastic or not. I think it might be. So it's all just talk. But Antony keeps bringing it back to Caesar. He says, Villains, you did not so when your vile daggers hacked one another in the sides of Caesar. So you did not so. You didn't threaten. You didn't give any warning. In other words, when your vile daggers hacked one another. There were so many daggers in Caesar's side at the time that they actually hacked each other. So you didn't give any warning. You just stung. You attacked. You showed your teeth like apes, and fawned like hounds, and bowed like bondmen, kissing Caesar's feet, whilst damned Casca, like a cur, behind struck Caesar on the neck. You showed your teeth, in other words, you grinned, you smiled, like apes, you know, like monkeys, and fawned like hounds. It's that thing that dogs do where they go submissive and they kind of rub up against you, so that you'll give them a treat. So you fawned like dogs, and you bowed like bondmen. Bondmen are like slaves or serfs, kissing Caesar's feet. And you can hear those hard B sounds of bowed like bondmen. Kissing Caesar's feet. So these are all the things they did to distract Caesar whilst damned Casca. So you were sucking up to him in front, but damned Casca like a cur. A cur is like a mangy dog. Behind struck Caesar on the neck. So he snuck up behind Caesar and stabbed him in the neck. Almost like a dog that jumps onto you from behind while you're not looking. So he's really attacking how two-faced they were, that they didn't even come up to his front and attack him. They attacked him from behind. Oh, you flatterers. So you flattered him while you were betraying him. And this is too much for Cassius. He says, flatterers? Now, Brutus, thank yourself. This tongue had not offended so today if Cassius might have ruled. Oh, Cassius, always settling old scores. He says Brutus can thank himself for this argument and this battle. This tongue, in other words, Antony's tongue, had not offended so, would not have offended like this today, if Cassius might have ruled. Ruled here like prevailed. Remember, Cassius was the one who argued that Antony should be killed too, along with Caesar, because he was dangerous. So if we had just listened to Cassius, we wouldn't have to deal with this guy today. So this has escalated pretty fast. There's arguments on all sides. And finally, Octavius cuts it off. He says, come, come, the cause. The cause, like, let's get back to the matter at hand. If arguing make us sweat, the proof of it will turn to redder drops. So if we're just sweating from arguing, the proof of it, proof here like the test or the trial, presumably through battle, will turn to redder drops. Redder like bloodier, as opposed to the clear sweat drops. So we're just sweating here, but when we finally try out this cause... It's going to lead to drops of blood. And finally, he presses the action. He says, look, 
I draw a sword against conspirators. When think you that the sword goes up again? So he's calling them out as conspirators, and he draws his sword on them, and he says, when do you think that the sword goes up again? When do you think it's going to be sheathed again? And he answers his own question, rhetorical question. He says, never, till Caesar's three and thirty wounds be well avenged, or till another Caesar have added slaughter to the sword of traitors. So I'm never putting the sword away until Caesar's three and thirty wounds. And this is interesting because Plutarch actually says there were 23 wounds in Caesar. There's some indication that this might be a Jesus reference because Jesus was 33 supposedly when he was killed. It might also just be Shakespeare making a mistake about his age. I don't know. He might want to boost the brutality. He might think it's a more elegant number, 33, because it's the same number twice. I don't know, man. So the sword isn't going back into its sheath until Caesar's wounds are all well avenged. Well as in clearly or sincerely avenged, presumably by killing the people that killed him. Maybe Brutus gets 33 wounds next. Or till another Caesar, i.e. himself, because he's now Octavius Caesar, have added slaughter to the sword of traitors. In other words, he has become another victim of the slaughter of these traitors. So either they're going to die to avenge Caesar's death, or Octavius himself is going to die at the same traitor's swords. But Brutus hasn't quite left behind the witty banter. Notice what he replies. He takes traitors as his cue and says, Caesar, thou canst not die by traitors' hands unless thou bringst them with thee. So you're saying you might die at the sword of traitors? Well, Brutus says, actually, there's no way you can die by the hand of a traitor unless you bring those hands along with you. Brutus is saying, I'm not a traitor. The only traitor's hands that can kill you is if they're either your men's hands or your own hands. And Octavius doesn't let that go. He says, so I hope. Yeah, I'd actually rather die at my own hands or the hands of my men. I was not born to die on Brutus's sword. You're not going to kill me. And Brutus replies, Oh, if thou wert the noblest of thy strain, young man, thou couldst not die more honorable. So if thou wert the noblest of thy strain, even if you were the noblest person of your family line. And then I love that he calls him young man, really rubbing in how young he is. So even if you were the absolute noblest person in your whole family, which is a pretty noble family, thou couldst not die more honorable. There's no more honorable way for you to die than on my sword. And Cassius piles on. He says, A peevish schoolboy, worthless of such honor, joined with a masker and a reveler. So not only is he a young man, he's a peevish schoolboy. Peevish means like impulsive or silly. Like a kid who's still in school. Worthless of such honor. Worthless like unworthy of the honor of dying on Brutus's sword. Joined with, like joined together with or allied with, a masker. A masker is someone who enjoys elaborate entertainments, what were called masks and a reveler. A reveler is a party or a drinker. So you have this little boy, Octavius, joined together with this party boy, Antony. And all Antony can say is, old Cassius still. Like, still the same old Cassius. I also think there's a little play on that young man that Brutus just called Octavius. Well, now it's old Cassius. You sometimes see another meaning of this line, which is old Cassius, comma, be still, be quiet. I kind of prefer the first way better, but it's up to you. And Octavius finishes his verse line. He says, come, Antony, away. Like, let's go away from here. That's enough of that. And notice he's really taking charge. He's saying, Antony, let's go. I'm in charge now. And he has one more thing to say to them as they leave. Defiance, traitors, hurl we in your teeth. So the order of that is a little mixed up. We hurl defiance in your teeth, traitors. In your teeth here is something like in your face. So we defy you, you traitors. We throw that in your face. If you dare fight today, come to the field. The field here being the battlefield. And you can hear that alliteration of fight and field. 
It's the kind of sound you sort of spit at someone. So if you even dare to fight today, well, come see us on the battlefield. If not, when you have stomachs. So if you don't dare to fight us today, when, whenever, you have stomachs. Stomachs here like the appetite or the desire to fight. You know, come find us whenever you're up for fighting. We'll just be hanging out. And off they go. So this really got us worked up for the battle, right? Shakespeare's really trying to build anticipation. Remember, he can't actually show very much of the battle on stage. His last play was this play called Henry V, which starts with a guy coming out and apologizing for the fact that we can't show this battle on stage. So he has to really build it with human tension here. So Octavius and Antony and crew sweep off, and Cassius says, Why now blow wind, swell billow, and swim bark? So blow wind, swell billow. A billow is a wave, so the wave should swell up and swim bark. A bark is a ship. It's a somewhat unusual image. After all, they're not in a boat. But the images of a growing wind and a swelling ocean, both of which really lead a boat to power forward. So it's as though their whole era is this ship that is steaming forward, maybe towards another ship. The storm is up and all is on the hazard. The storm is up like blowing or raging, like we're in the middle of a hurricane and all is on the hazard. This is a gambling term. It means everything is at stake. Like it's all riding on this one hand, this one throw of the dice. It's almost hard to tell from this language whether Cassius is excited or worried about the battle. But instead of saying anything like that, what he's doing is he's building up a very clear image in our minds of a gathering storm and a ship at sea. Everything about it says conflict. And Brutus gets ready. He turns to Lucilius and says, Ho, Lucilius, hark, a word with you. Ho, like, hey there, Lucilius, hark, listen, a word with you. I just need one word. And Lucilius says, my lord. And they kind of go off together for a second to talk. We're just sort of talking on the side of the stage. We don't actually hear anything yet. And Cassius does the same thing. He says, Missala. And Missala replies, what says my general? And then he has a sort of strange reflection. He says, Missala, this is my birthday. As this very day was Cassius born. I actually really like the structure of that sentence. Yeah, it's my birthday because on this very day I was born. Yeah, that's what a birthday means. But by kind of stretching it out, it kind of freezes this moment. It's like a little freeze frame before everything goes wrong. It feels like a kind of offhand remark that it just occurred to him. Oh my god, it's my birthday. I could die on my birthday. That would be super ironic. And then he gives us a little bit of an insight into what he's thinking. He says, give me thy hand, Masala. And why does he want his hand? Well, he wants to swear something to him. He says, be thou my witness that against my will, as Pompey was, am I compelled to set upon one battle all our liberties. So you're my witness, Masala, that against my will... Remember, Cassius doesn't want to be here. He would much rather have Antony and Octavius chase them all around Turkey. But no, Brutus convinced him they had to come here. And just like Pompey was... We don't know this now, but at the time, a lot of people would have known their Roman history, which is that the sort of big climactic battle between Pompey and Caesar was at this place called Pharsalus. And at the time, Pompey was convinced to fight there against his better judgment. Like, I don't want to do this, but he ended up fighting Caesar there and losing. So just like Pompey, I'm compelled, I'm forced to set upon one battle. Set, another gambling word. It means to wager or bet. I'm betting on one battle all our liberties, like our freedoms. Like, if we lose this, we'll lose our freedom. He really seems to not like having to do this. This was not his choice, and yet he is stuck here. And then he says, You know that I held Epicurus strong and his opinion? Here's that Epicurean thing again. Whereas Brutus is a Stoic, Cassius is more of an Epicurean. So I held Epicurus strong means I highly respected Epicurus and also his opinion. And what was his opinion? Well, Epicureans believed only in material things of the world, not kind of superstitious omens. 
Remember, he was the one who was out walking with his shirt open in that terrible storm the night before Caesar's assassination. But, he says, now I change my mind and partly credit things that do presage. So I used to think omens were nothing, but now I actually change my mind and partly credit things. Credit like believe in or trust things that do presage. Presage meaning predict the future. I actually believe in some of this stuff now. Of course, he only says partly. And why? Well, he's going to tell a little story. He says, coming from Sardis, on our former ensign, two mighty eagles fell, and there they perched, gorging and feeding from our soldiers' hands, who to Philippi here consorted us. So coming from Sardis, on our way from that city in Turkey where his forces were camped out, on our former ensign, former not in our modern sense, but like foremost, like our farthest forward, ensign, which is like the big flag or banner that the legion carries at the front, two mighty eagles fell, fell like descended on or alighted on, landed on. So these two huge eagles landed on their banner. That seems like a good sign, right? The eagle being a symbol of Rome. And there they perched, gorging, which means filling themselves with food and feeding from our soldiers' hands. So this is really unusual that these eagles would land and eat from their hands. They're wild birds. Who to Philippi here consorted us. Consorted means accompanied or attended. So apparently these amazing eagles were with them on that banner all the way from Sardis to Philippi. It's a long journey for them just to kind of hang out. But, he says, this morning are they fled away and gone, and in their steads do ravens, crows, and kites fly o'er our heads, and downward look on us as we were sickly prey. So these eagles should be good luck, right? Good omen. But no, this morning they're fled away and gone. The eagles are gone, and in their steads, in their places, do ravens, crows, and kites. Kites are a small hawk that's a scavenger, like ravens and crows. These are battlefield scavengers. These are birds that notoriously followed armies because they knew that when there was a battle, they were going to get the leftovers of people. There's a reason why ravens are a bad omen. It's because they're always hanging around death. So these battlefield scavengers are flying over our heads, almost like vultures circling, and downward look on us as we were sickly prey, as if we were sickly prey, almost like an animal that's dying, and the vultures start to circle already, waiting for them to die, because then they can eat them. So there's this terrible omen that these scavengers are just kind of following them around, waiting for them to die. Their shadows seem a canopy most fatal, under which our army lies, ready to give up the ghost. So their shadows, the shadows of those scavenger birds, they seem like a most fatal canopy. Fatal not deadly, but almost like ominous, foreboding, closer to the word fate. They're like a canopy over their heads, under which our army lies, ready to give up the ghost. Give up the ghost, of course, meaning to die, literally separating your soul from your body. The ghost is the soul, so if you give that up, you die. So the army is almost like a sick patient in bed under this canopy of birds. So it's a canopy bed, but instead of a canopy of cloth, it's a canopy of scavenger birds. Creepy, right? So it's a kind of dead man walking image. And that's a famous expression, give up the ghost. You hear those hard G sounds, give up the ghost. And Masala is understandably freaked out at this. He says, believe not so. Like, don't believe we're all about to die. And Cassius corrects himself a little. He interrupts the line and says, I but believe it partly, for I am fresh of spirit and resolved to meet all perils very constantly. I but, I only believe it partly, like part way. Remember, in his last speech, he said, I partly credit these things. I only slightly believe in them. So he's kind of trying to cheer Masala up after he just bummed him out big time. He says, I only kind of believe it. Why? I'm fresh of spirit. You know, I'm not total gloom and doom. I'm resolved to meet all perils, all dangers, very constantly. 
constantly, like, resolutely, without wavering. Like, I'm not going to turn tail and run or anything. I'm going to face danger. But... And meanwhile, whatever Brutus and Lucilius were talking about, they're done now. Brutus says, even so, Lucilius. Like, exactly that way. Just what you just said. And then he turns back to Cassius. So they've both had these weird little exchanges with their right-hand men here. And they have one last conversation to have before they launch this battle. Cassius says to Brutus, Now, most noble Brutus, the gods today stand friendly that we may, lovers in peace, lead on our days to age. So he's really trying to put on that brave face again. He calls him noble Brutus, his favorite adjective, the gods today, which is a way of saying, may the gods today stand friendly, like remain friendly or continue to be friendly to us, that we may, lovers in peace, lovers like close friends, in peacetime, lead on our days to age, like grow to an advanced age, grow old. So he's wishing for the gods to let them grow old. But, but since the affairs of men rest still uncertain, let's reason with the worst that may befall. So I hope we're going to get through this battle, live to be old, great, but... Since the affairs of men rest still uncertain. Rests like remains, still, always, uncertain, i.e. uncertain. So there's nothing certain in life. And because of that, let's reason with, in other words, let's reason through or debate the worst that may befall, the worst thing that might happen to us. Let's at least bring that up, you know, just, you know, just to be safe. If we do lose this battle, then is this the very last time we shall speak together? Speak together like speak to each other. That's daunting. So if we lose, this is going to be the last time we ever speak to each other. And he has a really interesting question. He says, what are you then determined to do? Like, what have you decided or resolved to do if we lose? And Brutus says, even by the rule of that philosophy by which I did blame Cato for the death which he did give himself, I know not how, but I do find it cowardly and vile for fear of what might fall, so to prevent the time of life arming myself with patience to stay the providence of some high powers that govern us below. So that question, what are you then determined to do, is basically Cassius asking, if we lose, are you going to stay alive? Are you going to kill yourself? And Brutus answers, I'm determined to act even by the rule of that philosophy. That philosophy, again, being Stoicism. And Stoicism accepted suicide under extreme, extreme circumstances, but mostly saw it as a way of kind of evading your responsibility to society, a kind of easy way out. So it's that same philosophy by which I did blame Cato. Cato, of course, being Brutus' famous father-in-law, who killed himself a few years before this rather than submitting to Caesar's rule. So by that Stoic philosophy, he blamed Cato for the death which he did give himself. So he blamed Cato for his suicide. And he says, arming myself with patience to stay the providence. Stay the providence is like await God's plan for you. So rather than kill yourself, you wait for what God has in mind for you. And the god here is some high powers, i.e. the gods, that govern us below, on earth. So it's a contrast of high and below. So he's kind of saying, I'm not actually going to kill myself, I'm going to let the gods decide what happens to me. And there's that parenthetical in the middle, I know not how, so I'm not exactly sure how I feel this, but I do find it cowardly and vile, vile like low, so to prevent the time of life, so here being in that way, i.e. by suicide, to prevent the time of life. Time of life being like your natural lifetime, the time that's allotted to you, just for fear of what might fall, fall like befall, happen, or take place to you. So he thinks it's cowardly to not live out your full lifetime just because you're afraid of what might happen to you. 
So this is really a speech against suicide. And Cassius responds, Then if we lose this battle, you are contented to be led in triumph through the streets of Rome? So in his last speech, Cassius said, If we do lose this battle, what are you determined to do? And now he says, If we lose this battle, this is what you're determined to do? You're contented, like you're happy, you're all right with being led in triumph? Remember this triumphant parade that a victorious conqueror does in Rome? Well, part of that parade is that the general who wins leads the captives through the city, usually in chains tied to his chariot wheels. So Cassius is saying, you're okay with being tied to the wheels of Octavius and Antony and led through Rome? That's cool with you? And Brutus says, no, Cassius, no. Think not, thou noble Roman, that ever Brutus will go bound to Rome. So this seems kind of contradictory. He's saying, think not, like, don't think, you noble Roman, that Brutus is ever going to go to Rome in chains, bound. That's never going to happen. So is he going to commit suicide? Is he not going to commit suicide? What is it? Like, can he actually stick to his philosophy? Brutus is all over the place here. Why won't he be bound to Rome? He says, he bears too great a mind. He bears like he owns or has too great a mind too noble or high a mind well that's his problem right there so he thinks too much of himself to ever be bound and go to rome to walk in a triumph still very squishy like what's he actually going to do he says but this same day must end that work the ides of march begun so whatever happens this is the day that's going to decide how our ides of march plan ends up so if we win it probably will have been worth it and if we lose that's going to be a judgment against us And whether we shall meet again, I know not. So I don't know if we're ever going to meet again. Again, he's very loosey-goosey about the suicide. He won't put anything on the record. He just wants to be known as someone with a great mind. So he says, I don't know if we're ever going to meet again. Therefore, our everlasting farewell take. Notice this is Shakespeare again pushing the verb to the end of the verse line. Let's take, in other words, let's say, our everlasting farewell, our goodbye forever. Forever and forever farewell, Cassius. So this is that everlasting farewell he was talking about in the last line. You also have that alliteration of forever, forever, farewell. If we do meet again, why, we shall smile. So he just said, I don't know if we're ever going to meet again. And now he gives both options. If we do actually meet again, like we win this battle, well, we'll smile. If not, why then this parting was well made. A parting is a saying goodbye. It's a farewell. Like this was a good goodbye. If I don't see you again, we left things on the right foot. And Cassius repeats almost exactly what he said. He says, Forever and forever farewell, Brutus. If we do meet again, we'll smile indeed. Yeah, we really will smile if we meet again. If not, tis true this parting was well made. I like these almost exact echoes with just slight variations. Shakespeare does this sometimes. It's very formal rhetoric, but it kind of belongs in this play. This is their official goodbye in case of emergency. And with that, they say goodbye. And Brutus says, Why then, lead on. So let's march. And then he has this little interstitial here. He says, Oh, that a man might know the end of this day's business ere it come. Oh, that a man might know. Like, I wish I could know the end of this day's business ere it come, before it comes. I wish I could know how it's going to turn out, how today's business is going to end. Don't we all, buddy? But it sufficeth that the day will end, and then the end is known. So it sufficeth, in other words, it's going to have to be enough that we know the day is going to end, and then the end is known. So it would be nice if a man might know the end of this day's business, but the end is known. In other words, the end will be known at the end of the day. So whatever we do, the day's going to end. We'll know soon enough. And he cries out to the troops, Come ho, away! Like you over there, hey, let's go. And off they march. And with that, scene one ends, and we really launch into the battle in earnest. 
And sometimes you'll see productions that actually do a whole bunch of sword fights here or something, or they do a lot of sound effects or crazy music and lights. But whatever happens, the battle has begun. And so in the next scene, Act 5, Scene 2, we see this tiny little moment from the heat of battle. We see Brutus and Masala rush in, and Brutus turns to Masala and says, Ride, ride, Masala, ride, and give these bills unto the legions on the other side. And you can really see what Shakespeare is doing, manipulating urgency with those repetitions of the word ride. Ride, ride, Masala, ride. And give these bills, in other words, these written orders, unto the legions on the other side. Now, on the one hand, side rhymes with ride, so that's kind of cool. But also, what's the other side? Well, it's Cassius's side. Because in this big battle, they don't have walkie-talkies or anything like that. They have to send riders across the field to give messages about what to do next with his orders. So he gives the orders to Masala, and he says, Let them set on at once, for I perceive but cold demeanor in Octavius's wing, and sudden push gives them the overthrow. Let them set on, let Cassius's troops advance or attack at once, immediately, for I perceive but cold demeanor. Cold almost like apathetic or heartless. So the demeanor on Octavius's side is just heartless. They're not really putting themselves into it. Now's our chance to attack them. And sudden push gives them the overthrow. A sudden push, a sudden attack or assault gives them the overthrow, meaning it will defeat them. It'll destroy them. So if we attack now, we might win. Ride, ride, Masala. There's that refrain again, both at the beginning and the end. Let them all come down. Them all, I guess, is the reinforcements behind them. Maybe there's still some people up in the hills that are pouring down from behind them. So basically have all the troops attack at once. This is our big chance. And that phrase, let them all come down, you can make a case that every one of those syllables should be stressed. And especially given how short and vital this little scene is, it ratchets up the pressure tremendously. It's all happening now. We're going to attack now. And immediately after this, we flash into scene three. And as luck would have it, it's on Cassius's side, exactly what they were just talking about. But it seems to be later on. Because whereas Brutus was talking about attacking now, Cassius's troops seem to be in disarray. He says, Oh, look, Titinius, look, the villains fly. And the villains here aren't his enemies. I think the villains he's talking about are his own troops. They're flying. They're running away. They're fleeing the battle. He says, Myself have to mine own turned enemy. So I've turned enemy to my own troops. This ensign here of mine was turning back. And an ensign can be either the standard flag that you carry into battle or the person who carries it. So the flag was turning away from the front, and he says, I slew the coward and did take it from him. So he killed his own standard bearer, and now he has the flag. So maybe in this scene, Cassius is still carrying the flag. And immediately we think, well, Brutus was so optimistic in the last scene just a second ago. What went wrong? And Titinius answers that. He says, oh, Cassius, Brutus gave the word too early, who, having some advantage on Octavius, took it too eagerly. Brutus gave the word, in other words, ordered that attack too early. Oh, Brutus, so noble, such a bad planner. He screws it up again. Who, the who here being Brutus, having some advantage on Octavius, remember he said that he thought that they were cold and they should advance now? He took it too eagerly. He jumped the gun. His soldiers fell to spoil, whilst we by Antony are all enclosed. So his soldiers fell to spoil. Spoil means slaughter and destruction, presumably of Octavius's troops. It could also mean looting. So it worked out great for Brutus's side. But meanwhile, Cassius's troops are all enclosed by Antony. Enclosed meaning surrounded. So Cassius's troops are in trouble. He's losing to Antony. And in rushes Pindarus, who's Cassius's slave, remember? And he yells, fly further off, my lord, fly further off. Fly like run away, flee. And you can really hear all those sharp F sounds. Fly further off. 
and they're repeated just to really hype up the urgency of this. He says, Mark Antony is in your tents, my lord. Not literally his tent, but where the tents are set up, in his camp. So if they've made it that far, you know that Cassius is not doing well. And then Pindarus repeats that same fly further off refrain, but in a new variation. He says, fly therefore, noble Cassius, fly far off, get out of here. And Cassius replies, this hill is far enough. You say fly far off? He's like, I'm good. This hill is enough for me. And he says, look, look, Titinius, are those my tents where I perceive the fire? So he's probably seeing smoke and fire out across the field. And he asks Titinius if it's his camp that's on fire. And Titinius answers, they are, my lord. And he has one more assignment for Titinius. He says, Titinius, if thou lovest me, mount thou my horse and hide thy spurs in him till he have brought thee up to yonder troops and here again, that I may rest assured whether yon troops are friend or enemy. So if you love me, if I matter to you at all, mount thou my horse, get on my horse, which presumably is the best horse, and hide thy spurs in him. It's kind of gross. It means dig your spurs in as far as they will go. So usually when you're trying to get a horse to ride faster, you just sort of prick the sides a little bit with your spurs. But now he's saying stab the horse so it'll ride as fast as it possibly can. So ride fast till he have brought thee up to yonder troops, those troops over there, and here again, and back here again. So ride there and ride back as fast as you can, that I may rest assured whether yon troops are friend or enemy. We have this phrase rest assured, but it means something like be assured, whether yon troops, whether those troops over there are our friends or our enemies. So basically, are they Cassius's troops or are they Antony's troops? And Titinius promises, I will be here again, even with a thought, even like just exactly, with a thought, in other words, quick as a thought. I'll be there and back in a second. And he rushes off. And Cassius is really nervous at this point, so he says, go Pindarus, get higher on that hill. So they're on a hill now, but Pindarus has to go up even farther, to the highest point, so he can see. Cassius says, my sight was ever thick. Basically, my vision was always dull, like I was never very good at seeing. You be my eyes. He says, regard to Tinius, and tell me what thou notest about the field. So regard to Tinius, in other words, observe or watch to Tinius, and tell me what thou notest about the field. Tell me what you notice or observe around the battlefield. So give me a live report about how it's going. And Pindarus goes up onto that hill, and then Cassius has almost a little bit of a monologue. And it's going back to that birthday thing he talked about a few scenes ago. He says, this day I breathed first. So since it's his birthday, this is the anniversary of the day he drew his first breath. And he says, time has come round, and where I did begin, there shall I end. So time has come round, almost like it's a circle. So time started with me taking my first breath here, and it's going to end with me taking my last breath on this day. Where I did begin, there shall I end. I was born this day, I'll die this day. My life is run his compass. Is run his compass means has run its complete circuit, has come its full circle. So it's this moment of little reflection here. And you can see in this section, Cassius has a lot of sort of half lines. It really is a sign of stress and pressure building up on him. So he has this little mini monologue where he sort of muses what's happened to him. And then he turns back to Pindarus and says, Syrah, what news? Syrah, again, being a way you address a social inferior. So what news? What's happening? And Pindarus yells out, oh, my Lord. And Cassius asks, what news? So he's going to give the report. This is really like listening to sports on the radio where you just hear the play by play. So Pindarus narrates, he says, Titinius is enclosed round about with horsemen that make to him on the spur, yet he spurs on. So he's enclosed round about. He's surrounded on all sides with horsemen that make to him. Make to him means ride toward him. So there's horsemen riding in all directions towards him on the spur. So they're using their spur too. They're running very, very fast. They're all trying to reach him. Yet he spurs on. 
So they're on the spur. They're riding as fast as they can. But he's also riding as fast as he can. So it's like a race. Now they are almost on him. So you can really feel the tension of it. Again, Shakespeare can't show this scene on stage. He ratchets up tension with the words, with these reports. So they're almost reaching him. Now Titinius, which might indicate that they've reached him. Now some light. Light is short for a light. It means they get off their horses. And he reports, oh, he lights too. He's taken. Taken is short for taken, meaning captured. So you can really see the tension rising with that now, 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 oh. So step by step, increasing tension. And finally, he's captured. And he says, and hark, they shout for joy. Hark means listen or even behold, like look. So we might actually be able to hear some of that sound far off. So the men are shouting for joy. And Cassius doesn't want to hear anymore. Titinius was his last hope. He says, come down, behold no more. You can stop looking now. It's hopeless. Come back down. And he says, O coward that I am to live so long, to see my best friend tame before my face. It's really self-critical. He's saying, I'm a coward that I've lived long enough to see my best friend. I did not know Titinius was his best friend, but cool. Tain, in other words, captured before my face, in front of me while I watch, even though he wasn't literally watching. So he can't believe this has happened. And Pindarus comes back and he says, come hither, Sirrah. Come over here, Sirrah. So he has something to tell Pindarus. He says, in Parthia did I take thee prisoner? And then I swore thee, saving of thy life, that whatsoever I did bid thee do, thou shouldst attempt it. In Parthia, which is a region in Persia, did I take thee prisoner. So now we know where Pindarus came from. He's Persian. He's Parthian. So presumably Cassius was out fighting for the empire, and he took Pindarus on as his slave then. He says, then I swore thee. In other words, I made you swear, saving of thy life. So basically he said, I won't kill you if you'll do this for me. That whatsoever I did bid thee do, like no matter what I ask you to do, thou shouldst attempt it. You would do it. So that was the deal. I won't kill you if you'll serve me and do whatever I ask. Okay, weird deal, but all right. Come now, keep thine oath. So you swore that to me, now I'm going to hold you to it. Now be a free man. And with this good sword that ran through Caesar's bowels, search this bosom. So he's saying it's time for you to be free, because the only way he can be free is if Cassius dies. He's asking him with this good sword that ran through Caesar's bowels. So he hands him his sword, the same sword he used to stab Caesar. Bowels, of course, being innards. So with that same sword, search this bosom. This is a really interesting phrase because it literally means stab me in the chest. But there's a less literal meaning, which is like examine my heart or probe my thoughts. Remember, Cassius has been threatening to kill himself in basically every scene in this play. But now it's actually time to do it. And notice he doesn't do it himself. He hands the sword over to someone else to help him. And this is a great deal for Pindarus because Pindarus gets to be free. And maybe Pindarus hesitates a little bit, but Cassius says, stand not to answer. Stand here almost like delay, like don't delay to answer me. Here, take thou the hilts. And when my face is covered as tis now, guide thou the sword. Take the hilts, the hilts being like the handle. So hold the handle side. And when my face is covered as tis now, which seems to be a cue for him to actually take his cloak and put it up over his face. Because you don't want to watch someone kill you. He wants to be surprised. Guide thou the sword. And with Cassius's face covered, Pindarus follows the last order and he runs him through with his own sword. Cassius is not going to live to be taken prisoner. English people watching this play would have seen this as a deeply Roman trait, that rather than be dishonored by being taken captive, you kill yourself. So to him, it's the only honorable move left. He's hopeless. He saw everyone else captured. But notice what he says after he's stabbed. What are his dying words? He says, Caesar, thou art revenged even with the sword that killed thee. Even with the sword that killed thee, like with exactly the same sword that killed you. So he's talking to Caesar, almost as though the ghost is actually standing there watching him. The sword that stabbed you is now stabbing the guy who stabbed you. 
and Cassius dies. If only they would have trusted Cassius, is probably his last thought. Poor Cassius. And after Cassius dies, Pindarus says, So I am free. It would not so have been, durst I have done my will. Yeah, he is free. But he says, he would not so have been. Almost like he wishes he wouldn't have been freed this way. He didn't want to kill Cassius. Durst I have done my will. If I had dared to do what I wanted to. He didn't want it to end this way. He would have rather be freed on better circumstances than killing Cassius. Like, obviously, he didn't want to be taken prisoner in Parthia and all that, but I'm sure Cassius was pretty good to him. And notice in the midst of this crazy battle, which is jumping back and forth between scenes and locations and narrations, that this line slows the scene way down. How does it do that? Our favorite technique, monosyllables. So I am free, yet would not so have been, durst I have done my will. It really slows it down for us to sort of contemplate the death of this major character. He says, oh, Cassius, he really liked this guy. And he has one last statement. He says, Far from this country Pindarus shall run, where never Roman shall take note of him. Pindarus is going to run very far away from this place, where never Roman shall take note of him. Take note of, like, pay attention to. He's going to run as far as he can. Maybe he'll go back to Parthia. But he is out. He wants nothing to do with Romans anymore. And, you know, smart move. They seem like nothing but trouble. So Pindarus is like, yoink, I'm out. And away he goes. He probably also doesn't want anyone to know he just killed Cassius, even though Cassius requested it. Remember, he's a foreigner, so what are they going to think? And in classic sort of Romeo and Juliet fashion, the first thing that happens after Cassius dies is in comes Titinius, not with the troops of the enemy, but with Messala. So this is bad. It looks like what they think they saw with Titinius being surrounded wasn't what they actually saw. And Messala and Titinius are talking about what happened. Messala says, It is but change, Titinius, for Octavius is overthrown by noble Brutus's power, as Cassius's legions are by Antony. It is but change. It's just a trade. Like that word exchange. So it's not like one side or the other has won the day. They've basically traded. Why? For Octavius is overthrown by noble Brutus's power, power being army or forces. So Brutus has actually beaten back Octavius' side, just as Cassius's legions are overthrown by Antony's. So half of one army won and half of the other. So they're at a draw, basically. They've traded. And Titinius says, these tidings will well comfort Cassius. So these tidings, this news, will well comfort, in other words, encourage Cassius after his loss to Antony. So at least one part of the army will have won. And Messala asks, where did you leave him? So where is he? You said he was up here. And Titinius replies, all disconsolate, with Pindarus his bondman on this hill. All disconsolate, like completely inconsolable or unhappy. With Pindarus his bondman, bondman being like a slave or a serf, on this hill. And then Messala sees him and freaks out. He says, is not that he that lies upon the ground? And Titinius worries even more. He says, he lies not like the living. Look at all those L sounds. He doesn't lie on the ground like someone who's alive. Oh, my heart. And he rushes over to Cassius. And Messala asks, is not that he? Isn't that him? And Titinius takes that as his cue and finishes his line by saying, no, this was he, Messala, but Cassius is no more. So he asks, isn't that him? And Titinius replies, no, it was him. He isn't Cassius anymore. He's dead. And he says, O setting sun, as in thy red rays thou dost sink to night, so in his red blood Cassius's day is set. So he's actually talking to the sunset here. We're getting to the end of the day, and he says to the sun, As in thy red rays, just as in the red rays of the setting sun, thou dost sink to night. In other words, sink into night. You know how the sun turns a darker, even redder color at sunset? So just like you turn red at the end of the day, so in his red blood, Cassius's day is set. So like the sun, Cassius turns red with blood as his day, in other words, his life, sets, it ends. So it's a pretty elaborate poetic comparison. 
But he takes it even farther. He says, the son of Rome is set. Our day is gone. So either he's calling Cassius the son of Rome, which might be a little pun on S-U-N and S-O-N, or he's literally saying that Rome's best days are over. Our day is gone. Like our time is over. And you can see again Shakespeare slowing down the scene after this big dramatic moment of discovering his body with these monosyllables. The son of Rome is set. Our day is gone. Clouds, dews, and dangers come. Because remember, night was thought to bring on these kind of damp, unhealthy conditions. So those clouds of fog, those moist dews, and dangers come, like wild animals out at night. So once the sun of Rome is set, now Rome is plunged into night. And that's where the terrible dangers are. Our deeds are done. So in the last line we had, our day is gone, and now we have, our deeds are done. So maybe our times of doing great deeds are over, or what's done is done. And then he picks up on that word deeds that he just said and realizes something horrible. He says, mistrust of my success hath done this deed. Mistrust of my success, like doubt that I would succeed in the thing he told me to do, hath done this deed, has caused him to die. So before we got deeds are done and now we have done this deed. So he makes this terrible leap, which is that it's my fault that he's dead. Cassius was worried I wouldn't succeed, and so he killed himself. But Messala doesn't want to hear any of that. He almost exactly echoes Titinius's line, but he alters it. He says, mistrust of good success hath done this deed. So it wasn't that you wouldn't succeed. Good success is like a favorable outcome. Success doesn't just have to be our sense of positive success. It can be like that word succeed. It's like whatever comes next. Basically, it's not like he was worried you wouldn't succeed. He was worried that whatever came wouldn't be good. He just didn't trust that there would be good things coming. That's why he did it. It's not your fault. So not mistrust of my success, mistrust of good success. He neutralizes it. And then he has this lament. He says, O hateful error, melancholy's child, why dost thou show to the apt thoughts of men the things that are not? So he's talking to error, and he calls it the child of melancholy. So when you're depressed, you think things that aren't true. You imagine things. You imagine the worst, basically. And that's what Cassius did. He was a kind of melancholy guy anyway. And the result of that melancholy was making this hateful error. He says to error, Why dost thou show to the apt thoughts of men the things that are not? Apt here means like impressionable or susceptible. Like melancholy people want to believe this stuff. And so error shows them things that are not. In other words, that don't actually exist. And he says, O error, soon conceived, thou never comest unto a happy birth, but killst the mother that engendered thee. So he says error is soon conceived. In other words, it's thought up very quickly. So you make a really quick error. You don't think about it very much. It just comes into your mind. Thou never comest into a happy birth. Happy here, not in our modern sense, but more like fortunate or good. And notice there's an image going on here of a child being born. So error is like a baby that's conceived, but it's never born fortunate or good, but killing the mother that engendered thee. The mother in this case is the melancholy person that engendered thee, that created you. So when an error is born, in other words, thought up, the result of the birth is always the mother dying, that the person who actually carries out that error is harmed. And Titinius is looking around. He says, what, Pindarus? Where art thou, Pindarus? He's looking for an explanation here. He left him with Pindarus, and Pindarus is nowhere to be found. And Masala, who's probably weeping over the body at this point, says, Seek him, Titinius, while I go to meet the noble Brutus, thrusting this report into his ears. So he's going to go find Brutus. Again, the noble Brutus, his adjective of choice. And he has a strange way of saying it. He says he's going to thrust this report into his ears. And he explains that phrase. He says, I may say thrusting it, for piercing steel and darts envenomed shall be as welcome to the ears of Brutus as tidings of this sight. So it's as though he's going to stab Brutus in the ears with this report of what happened to Cassius. Piercing steel like a sharp dagger and darts envenomed. 
Darts is any sort of sharp object. It can be arrows or spears, but here they're poisoned. So those piercing weapons would be as welcome to the ears of Brutus as tidings of this site, as news or reports of this site, the site of Cassius dead. And Titinius agrees. He says, Hi you, Masala, and I will seek for Pindarus the wild. Hi you, hi means hurry or hasten. Go find him, and I will seek for Pindarus the while. In other words, while you do that. I'll go find Pindarus, see if we can get some answers. And off goes Masala, and Titinius has this kind of tender moment with the body of Cassius. He's talking to him. He said, Why didst thou send me forth, brave Cassius? So why did you send me out into the field? Did I not meet thy friends? And did not they put on my brows this wreath of victory and bid me give it to thee? So this is explaining what actually happened, what Pindarus saw, that he interpreted as something else. Didn't I meet your friends? So he thought they were enemy soldiers, but actually it was Masala's troops all along. And didn't they put on my brows, in other words, on my head, literally your forehead, this wreath of victory? Oh, so presumably he's wearing that wreath still. And bid me give it thee, and ask me to give it to you. Didst thou not hear their shouts? Remember, Pindarus heard the shouts of the troops when they quote-unquote captured him. So evidently all they saw was friends meeting friends, not enemies capturing friends. And then he has this line that just kills me and in many ways really ties the entire play together. He says, Alas, thou hast misconstrued everything. Remember way back in Act 1 when Cassius ran into Cicero in the middle of the night, and Cicero had that line about how men may construe things after their fashion, clean from the purpose of the things themselves, about how people were always misinterpreting things, however they wanted to see it? Well, now here we have Cassius dead, and Titinius saying to him, You've misconstrued everything. You misunderstood everything. You misread it. And this really could be the motto of the play. Characters misinterpreting or misreading situations in a way that ends up getting them in trouble. So this whole play is really like a pageant of misconstruing. And then he says, but hold thee, take this garland on thy brow. So hold on a second, wait, I am going to give you this wreath, this garland that they asked me to give you. So he puts it on his head. He says, thy Brutus bid me give it thee, and I will do his bidding. So Brutus asked me to give it to you, and I will do his bidding. I'll do what he asked. So Brutus specifically requested that he give him the wreath of victory. So finally, even though it's too late, he gives it over. And then suddenly it becomes clear why Titinius is doing this. He says, Brutus, come apace and see how I regarded Caius Cassius. Come apace means come quickly, come soon. See how I regarded Caius Cassius. See how much I respected him. See how much esteem I held him in. Well, how is he going to demonstrate how much he respected him? He says, by your leave, gods, this is a Roman's part. By your leave, by your permission, O gods, this is a Roman's part. This is the act of a Roman, or even this is the role of a Roman in a situation like this. This is the part a Roman should play. And you won't be surprised to hear that that part is suicide. He says, come Cassius's sword and find Titinius's heart. So he picks up Cassius's bloody sword and he stabs himself in the heart with it. And it's another one of these Romeo and Juliet situations. Just as someone kills themselves, in comes the people that could save them. In comes Brutus and his crew. And Brutus says, where, where, Masala, doth his body lie? So evidently, Masala's just told him about Cassius, and he needs to see the body. Remember, this is one of his best friends in the world. And Masala says, lo, yonder, and Titinius mourning it. Lo means something like, behold, like, look over there. There's Titinius mourning his body. But Brutus notices something strange. He says, Titinius's face is upward. That's weird. He's facing up. That's not what you do when you're mourning someone. And then one of his men notices... He is slain. Oh no, Titinius is dead too. Do you see who says that though? It's Cato. Not Father Cato. Father Cato is dead. Cato the Younger, who must have been Portia's brother and Brutus's brother-in-law, notices this. So he's on the team too. 
and seeing everyone killing themselves, Brutus has this incredible moment. He says, O Julius Caesar, thou art mighty yet. It's an incredible statement. He's saying, Julius Caesar, you're still mighty. You're still strong. And obviously Julius Caesar, the man, is dead. But Julius Caesar, the idea, is immortal. It still has the power to kill them. He says, Thy spirit walks abroad and turns our swords in our own proper entrails. Thy spirit, your ghost, walks abroad, abroad like everywhere, at large, freely across the land. And it turns our swords in our own proper entrails. Own proper is like our very own. And entrails are guts. So it's as though the ghost is making us stab ourselves. And Cato notices and says, Brave Titinius, look where he have not crowned dead Cassius. Look where he have not, short for look whether he have not, is an expression like, would you look at that? Or, well, if he hasn't. Like, see that he's crowned dead Cassius with that wreath they gave him. It's a kind of sweet moment. And Brutus says, are yet two Romans living such as these? So are there two Romans still left alive who are as great as these two were? He says, the last of all the Romans, fare thee well. That's a really cool title, the last of all the Romans. He can really sense that something fundamental about Rome is going away today. He says, goodbye, fare thee well. It is impossible that ever Rome should breed thy fellow. So Rome is never again going to breed, going to produce thy fellow, someone who's equal to you. He seems to be talking pretty directly to Cassius at this point. And he turns to the others and says, friends, I owe more tears to this dead man than you shall see me pay. I'm going to cry for you in the future, but I couldn't possibly cry enough. And there's that sort of financial image of owing tears and not being able to pay them. He says, I shall find time, Cassius. I shall find time. So I'll find the time to actually cry for you sometime in the future. I like that cool repetition of I shall find time. I shall find time. Unfortunately for him, he probably won't find time. And because, you know, the circumstances are pretty urgent here, he says, come therefore, and to Thasos send his body. That's an island nearby to Philippi. But why is he sending the body to an island? He says, his funerals shall not be in our camp, lest it discomfort us. Oh man, even when Brutus is being sweet, he's creepy. He's always thinking of appearances. His funerals shall not be in our camp. We're not going to have the dead body of one of our generals brought back to our camp. This has to be done in secret. So we're going to take it to this island and do it there, lest it discomfort us. Discomfort like discourage or dishearten. I don't want the army to feel bad about our chances. Because remember, Cassius lost, but Brutus won, so they still have a chance here. And he's saying it would look bad if we did this funeral here. We can't afford to have the army discouraged. And he turns to his men and says, Lucilius, come, and come, young Cato. Let us to the field. So they're going back to the battlefield now. They have to get rid of this body, but they have to keep fighting. Labio and Flavius set our battles on. Oh, Labio, that's not a good name at all. So these are two new guys, and this Flavius is probably not the same Flavius, the Tribune from the beginning of the play. This is probably a different guy. But evidently, they're sort of sub-commanders of Brutus's army. He says, set our battles on. Set our battles on here means advance or move our armies forward. Battles are battalions or fighting forces. So we're going to try another advance. He says, tis three o'clock, and Romans, yet ere night, we shall try fortune in a second fight. So it's only three o'clock, yet ere night. Still, before night falls, we shall try fortune. We'll test our luck or test our chances in a second fight. So evidently, after Antony and Brutus won, there's a little bit of a dying down. They sort of retreat to their camps. But now they're going to try again. They're going to fight again. In real history, this actually happened the second day. So they fought. There was a little bit of a stalemate. They went back to their camps to regroup. And then the next day they fought again. But here Shakespeare packs it into one day because it's not very dramatic to go back to your camps and sleep for a few hours. 
And notice again that scene three ends with a rhyming couplet, which is Shakespeare's sort of indicator that something is coming to an end here. It's a great kind of tag to mark the end of the scene. End of scene three, beginning of scene four. And this is actually a very difficult transition to manage because notice that the people who exit at the end of scene three are almost exactly the same people who enter at the beginning of scene four. It's Brutus and all his guys, which seems to indicate that there's a little room there if you want to do kind of big fight scene stuff to do that. Because what happens is we've just had a big skip of time. Brutus left the last scene saying, we're going to go into battle, we're going to try a second fight now. But when scene four starts, things are not going wonderfully. We're back in the middle of battle and it seems like the battle is not going Brutus's way. Because what does he say? Yet, countrymen, oh yet hold up your heads. Yet means still. And when he says hold up your heads, he's saying stay proud, don't give up. Because if you were to drop your heads, that would mean you gave up. So he's saying, keep your head up, everyone, still, which implies even though we're losing. And with that, Brutus, who's just re-entered here, runs off with a few of his guys. And the guys left behind are Cato and Lucilius. Cato, remember, being Brutus's brother-in-law. So Brutus just said, hold up your heads. And Cato's answer to that is, what bastard doth not? Not just bastard like jerk in our modern sense, but bastard meaning like not really his father's son, like someone who has no pride in his family and his country. So the only person who wouldn't hold up their heads in a situation like this is someone who isn't really his father's son. And he cries out to the other men, who will go with me? I will proclaim my name about the field. This is going back to that bastardy thing again. He's going to tell everyone on that field who he is, who his father was, how proud he is to be a Roman. He says, I am the son of Marcus Cato, ho. And this is a big deal because Marcus Cato, a great Roman statesman who was really famous for his like unflappable moral fiber. This is someone you'd be proud to be the son of. And that ho at the end is like, hey, like, hey, everybody, I'm the son of the great Marcus Cato, a foe to tyrants and my country's friend. This is a very neat poetic line. It's a true antithesis. He's a foe to tyrants. He's a friend to his country. And you have foe at the beginning of the line and friend at the end. So Shakespeare could have written a foe to tyrants and a friend to my country, but it's much more elegant this way. So he's saying he'll oppose all tyrants because he's a friend to his own country of Rome. And he repeats, I am the son of Marcus Cato, ho. And then in come Antony's troops and there's a fight. All you fight choreographers, here's your big moment. And as that's happening, Lucilius has a really interesting idea. He says, and I am Brutus, Marcus Brutus, I. This is a kind of I am Spartacus moment. He's trying to take the rap for Brutus so that he can get away. He says, Brutus, my country's friend. You see him repeating the structure that Cato just used? My country's friend. He says, know me for Brutus. Know me for like know me to be Brutus. Know me as Brutus. And just as he's yelling that out, Cato loses his sword fight and is killed. And Lucilius rushes over and says, oh, young and noble Cato, art thou down? Down like fallen down dead. Are you killed? Why now thou diest as bravely as Titinius and mayst be honored being Cato's son. Remember, Titinius just killed himself when he saw Cassius. And to them, that's a very brave death. And he's saying that Cato may be honored being the son of Cato. And the guy on Antony's side who just killed Cato says, yield or thou diest. So he's telling Lucilius, yield, in other words, surrender or I'm going to kill you. And Lucilius jumps right into the verse line and says, only I yield to die. Like the only thing I surrender to is dying. I'm not going to surrender to you. It's a really nice witty comeback to that yield or thou diest. He says, only I yield to die. It recasts it. And he says, there is so much that thou wilt kill me straight. The there he's talking about is evidently some sort of payment. Like here, take this money. That's so much that, in other words, so that you will kill me straight, as in straight away or immediately. He's literally paying him to kill him. Because if it's reported that Brutus has just died, well, then they'll stop looking for Brutus and that'll save him. 
Lucilius says, kill Brutus and be honored in his death. In other words, get honor for yourself by killing Brutus. But the other soldier says, we must not, a noble prisoner. He's not going to kill Brutus. He's going to take him prisoner. Remember, they want him taken back to Rome as a trophy. And in comes Antony, victorious Antony. And one of his soldiers who's there says, room, ho. As in, make room, make way for Antony. Hey, tell Antony Brutus is tain. Tain meaning captured. And notice, they don't know this isn't Brutus. They don't necessarily know what Brutus looks like. They're just foot soldiers. This is more misconstruing. This is more misinterpreting. They saw this guy, they think he's the wrong guy. So you have misinterpretation all the way to the end. And the other soldier, the one who captured Lucilius, says, I'll tell the news. Here comes the general. So here he is now, I'll deliver the news. I captured him after all. He says, Brutus is tain. Brutus is tain, my lord. Tain again meaning captured. We got him. And Antony has this great response. Where is he? Because he knows this isn't Brutus. They've met. It's kind of a good laugh line actually on stage, considering how dire this all is. And Lucilius snaps back, safe, Antony. Brutus is safe enough. Like, where is he? He's safe. I dare assure thee that no enemy shall ever take alive the noble Brutus. So no one's ever going to capture him alive. And again, the noble Brutus. It should be his first name, noble Brutus. The gods defend him from so great a shame. The gods means may the gods. May they defend him from the great shame of being taken alive by his enemies and carried back to Rome. And then Lucilius has this little prophecy. He says, when you do find him or alive or dead, he will be found like Brutus, like himself. So when you do actually find him, or alive or dead, which means either alive or dead, he says, he will be found like Brutus. So on the one hand, he says, well, when you find him, he's actually going to be looking like Brutus, unlike myself, who clearly wasn't Brutus. But the implication of it here is that he's going to be found true to himself. He's going to behave like a Brutus. So however you find him, he's going to be Brutus till the end. So Lucilius really got a good speech in there. And Antony says to his men, this is not Brutus, friend, but I assure you a prize no less in worth. So this isn't the right guy, but I assure you he's a prize no less in worth. Like he's no less worthy of a prize than capturing Brutus would be. Now this isn't technically true, but it's a nice compliment for Lucilius. And he says, keep this man safe. Give him all kindness. So he really wants this prisoner to be treated well. Remember, this is a civil war, so they're going to have to put things back together at the end of all this. He says, I had rather have such men my friends than enemies. And this is a nice kind of hearkening back to what Cato was saying earlier in the scene about enemies and friends. He wants to keep him safe and give him kindness because he wants men like Lucilius as his friends, not as his enemies. He's not going to kill him just for the sake of killing him. And he has an order. He says, go on and see where Brutus be alive or dead and bring us word unto Octavius's tent how everything is chanced. See where, in other words, see whether Brutus is alive or dead. And bring us word unto Octavius's tent, how everything is chanced. Chance here means like happens or ends up or turns out. I'm just going to be in Octavius's tent. Let me know how everything's going. And that seems to indicate that maybe the battle really is winding down, that Brutus actually has basically lost at this point. And as if on cue, we move immediately into the next scene of this battle, the last scene of the play, where we find out how everything is chanced. And in comes Brutus with some of his men, a few we may have seen before, but kind of the dregs. And immediately he says, come poor remains of friends, rest on this rock. I love that expression, poor remains of friends. Like this is the remainder of his friends. It's what's left. Everyone else has been killed or run away. And he says, rest on this rock. It's a strange time for poetry, but that kind of alliteration really slows things down. This is a kind of contemplative, sad moment after the crazy run of battle scenes. So they all sit down on a rock together, almost as though they're in the middle of the ocean. And one of his men says, Statilius showed the torchlight, but my lord, he came not back. 
showed the torchlight here seems to indicate that he gave a signal, like he was supposed to flash a torch if he was okay. And they saw that signal, but he didn't come back. He is or Tain or slain. So he's either Tain, captured, or slain, killed. Mind you, we don't know who Statilius is, but he's clearly someone important. Either way, they're running out of men. And Brutus says, sit thee down, Clytus. Wait a minute, Clytus? We have a character named Clytus and a character named Labio? And in responding to this he is ortain or slain thing that Clytus just said, he picks up on that word slain as his cue. He says, slaying is the word. Sort of like the bird is the word, it's what everyone's talking about. Presumably because people are being killed everywhere now. Well, since we're talking about slaying, he says, it is a deed in fashion. It seems to be almost like the fashionable thing to do on this battlefield, slaying. I also like that contrast of word and deed. He says, hark thee, Clytus. Like, you listen to me for a second. And notice now we're getting down to the end. Brutus is starting to speak in half lines. He's really paring down his speech. The emotion is getting to him. He knows what's coming. So he has a thing to say to Clytus, but not out loud. He just whispers to him. We don't even hear it. And Clytus says, what I, my lord? Not for all the world. And after the last few scenes, we think we know what he's asking. But Shakespeare can't bring him to say it out loud. What I, my lord, I kill you? Not for all the world, not even if I had the entire world in payment for it. He says, peace then, no words. Peace means be quiet, don't say anything. No words. Like, don't tell anybody about this. And Clytus is still freaked out. He says, I'd rather kill myself. So he'd rather die himself than kill Brutus. I mean, if these are the dregs of his men, presumably these guys are pretty young and inexperienced, and he's like a god to them. He's not going to kill Brutus. So Brutus turns to the next guy. He says, hark thee, Dardanus. So you listen to me now. It's a kind of creepy refrain, that hark thee thing. And he makes the same request in his ear. Again, we don't hear it out loud. And Dardanus is similarly horrified. He says, shall I do such a deed? And Clytus says, oh, Dardanus. And Dardanus replies, oh, Clytus. Like they're both horrified. They're both commiserating with each other about this thing that Brutus is asking them to do. And remember, we haven't heard his request out loud yet. So when the two of them kind of back away from Brutus, they want to know what the other one said. Clytus says, what ill request did Brutus make to thee? Ill like bad or terrible. What did he ask you to do? Even though he thinks he knows, because Brutus asked him the same thing. It's almost like they can't say it out loud. And Dardanus finally says it. I love how Shakespeare sort of withholds information for line upon line upon line. And finally we hear, to kill him, Clytus. He asked me to kill him. Look, he meditates. Not meditates like transcendental meditation, more like he thinks deeply to himself. He's lost in thought. And Clytus says... Now is that noble vessel full of grief, that it runs over even at his eyes. And of course, he's still noble. He's a noble vessel now, though. The image is almost like a container or a cup. In this case, a vessel could also be a body, but it's like a container that is too full of grief, such that it runs over even at his eyes. Runs over like overflows. And what's overflowing from his eyes is tears. He's so full of grief that it's coming out of his eyes in liquid form. And part of his grief is that he can't even get anyone to help him kill himself. And he asks another one of his men. He says, come hither, good Volumnius. Come hither, come over here. List a word. Like, listen to just a word from me. And Volumnius asks, what says my lord? And Brutus finishes his line. Why this, Volumnius? This is what I say. The ghost of Caesar hath appeared to me two several times by night, at Sardis once, and this last night here in Philippi fields. Oh, this is news to us. We knew about the Sardis visitation. But we didn't know Caesar's ghost was there at Philippi, even though he promised he was going to visit him at Philippi. That was definitely a sort of Jacob Marley moment. I'm going to see you at Philippi. Yep, I bet you are. So this is a visitation we didn't actually get to see. We just saw the Sardis one. So he's appeared to me two several times. Several meaning like different or separate times. 
And what conclusion does he draw from that? He says, I know my hour is come. And what is his hour? It's his time to die. But Volumnius won't hear it. He interrupts him. He says, not so, my lord. Like, that isn't true. But Brutus responds right back. Nay, I am sure it is Volumnius. I'm sure it is so. It's my time. And then he has this beautiful little rumination. He says, thou seest the world, Volumnius, how it goes. That's just incredibly simple. In fact, if you look at Brutus's language throughout this scene, it's incredibly pared down and simple. Not a lot of polysyllabic words, not a lot of ornate kind of Latinate words, just really simple, good Anglo-Saxon vocabulary. You see the world, how it goes. This is just how things go. And I actually love in moments of extreme stress, Shakespeare will have characters go one of two ways, and sometimes both ways, which is either their language becomes incredibly elaborate, like more elaborate than it's ever been, or it becomes incredibly simple, like simpler than it's ever been. And then Brutus has an image. Our enemies have beat us to the pit. Beat us to the pit means driven us to the edge of a pit, almost like the kind of trap you'd use to catch a wild animal, like an elephant. So they've driven us to the precipice of this trap. I mean, the other thing about the word pit is it's very reminiscent of grave. So we're really on the edge of the grave here. He says, it is more worthy to leap in ourselves than tarry till they push us. It's more worthy to leap in ourselves, to jump into the pit, than it is to tarry, in other words, wait or delay, until they push us in. And notice what he's concerned about. He's concerned about worthiness, about nobility. Not it's smarter to leap in ourselves and wait until they push us. It's worthier. Again, the idea of how he's seen is so important to Brutus, that he be seen as a worthy person. So that's his justification for killing himself now. He says, Good Volumnius, thou knowest that we two went to school together. This is a sort of classic, as you know, Jim, form of writing, where you're trying to tell something to the audience, but you have one character say it to another character who clearly also knows it. Obviously, Volumnius knows they went to school together. Why does that matter? Even for that, our love of old, I prithee, hold thou my sword hilts whilst I run on it. Even for that, what's the that? Our love of old. In other words, our love from a long time ago, our long-standing love. I prithee, I ask you, or even I beg you, hold my sword hilts, remember the handle, while I run on it. It turns out it's actually hard to kill yourself with your own sword. So just like Cassius had a servant hold the sword while he ran on it, Brutus is going to do the same thing. And Volumnius responds, that's not an office for a friend, my lord. Because Brutus just appealed to their long-standing friendship, but he says that isn't an office, in other words, a job or a role, for a friend. I mean, at least Cassius asked a slave to do it, someone who had to do it. And there's some real commotion going on because Clytus yells out, Fly! Fly, my lord! There is no tarrying here! Fly like flee or run away! There's no tarrying here. There's no delaying or waiting here. We're all going to get killed. The battle's getting closer and closer to them. He's about to be captured. But Brutus isn't listening. He has other business. He says, Farewell to you, and you, and you, Volumnius. This is also very reminiscent of that kind of handshaking he likes to do so much. Remember when he shook the hands of the conspirators at his house in the middle of the night? This is a really formal farewell. He goes to each of them and says goodbye. And there's this funny little moment. He says, Strato, thou hast been all this while asleep. Farewell to thee too, Strato. Evidently, Strato came in and was exhausted from fighting all day and just fell asleep. But it's a kind of sweet moment. Again, though, he hasn't found anyone to kill him yet. He's just saying goodbye. But he gives a little speech here. He says, Countrymen, my heart doth joy that yet in all my life I found no man but he was true to me. My heart doth joy, my heart finds joy, that yet in all my life, still in my whole life, I found no man but he was true to me. So that phrase, but he was true, means something like, who wasn't true. In other words, I found no man in my entire life who was disloyal or dishonorable to me. 
are we sure about that? It's a very sweet sentiment. I just don't know if it's true. It seems like a lot of Brutus telling himself things he wants to believe. And notice again the stripped-down style. These two lines are all monosyllables. My heart doth joy that yet in all my life I found no man but he was true to me. It slows the scene way down. This is a guy really cognizant of his coming death. And he says, I shall have glory by this losing day more than Octavius and Mark Antony by this vile conquest shall attain unto. This is a really strange sentiment. He says he's going to have more glory from this day on which he lost than Octavius and Mark Antony are going to attain glory from their conquest. And notice he calls it a vile conquest, like an awful victory. And why is it awful? Well, it probably spells the end of the Republic. He's not wrong about this. The Republic's not going to last that much longer after this battle. And attain unto means achieve. So it's a kind of oxymoron. He's going to get more glory from losing than they gain from winning. Which again, nice sentiment, but kind of reads like sour grapes. This is more misconstruing for him. He's choosing to interpret it the way that makes him feel the most worthy and honorable. And with the enemy approaching, he says, So fare you well at once, for Brutus's tongue hath almost ended his life's history. Fare you well at once. It's time to say goodbye right now. For Brutus's tongue hath almost ended, in other words, finished telling, his life's history. It's a beautiful image, as though his tongue was reciting his entire life's history. That life itself comes through speech, and his is almost done telling. He says, Night hangs upon mine eyes. This is really beautiful. Night, as in sleep, as in the sleep of death. It hangs upon mine eyes. And remember, this is a guy who's had real trouble sleeping for most of this play. At the beginning, he had trouble sleeping because he was worried about whether he should assassinate Caesar. More recently, it's because he's been haunted by Caesar's ghost. But now you have this beautiful image of him realizing he's about to go into the final sleep. Also, it's almost nighttime in the battle. He says, My bones would rest that have but labored to attain this hour. My bones would rest. In other words, they want to rest. Perhaps in the grave. That have but labored. That have worked specifically to attain this hour. In other words, to reach this moment. This is what my bones were trying to achieve. They were trying to lie down in death. And notice that word attain again. So before Octavius and Antony were trying to attain a conquest, and now his bones are trying to attain the conquest of death. This is very beautiful language from Brutus right at the end of his life. And Clytus is really trying to get them out of there. He says, fly, my lord, fly, run away, let's go, come on, enough of these farewells. But Brutus says, hence, I will follow. Hence, like you go from here, I'll follow after you. Even though he's pretty clearly not going to follow after him. And they're all leaving, but Brutus holds back Strato. Remember the guy who was asleep? Maybe he actually wakes him up. He says, I prithee, Strato, stay thou by thy lord. Stay here next to your lord. In other words, me, Brutus, your master. So everyone else is left except these two guys. He says, thou art a fellow of a good respect. Respect like reputation. Thy life hath had some smatch of honor in it. I actually really love this line. He's trying to justify having this guy kill him. This is not how Brutus thought this would all end up. He thought maybe if he had to kill himself, he'd have someone honorable do it for him. But now it's just, you know what, you'll have to do. You have a smatch of honor in you. I love that word smatch. It's like a, like a taste or a smack of honor. Just enough. You're a fellow of a good respect. Sure, close enough. Really, I just need a guy to hold the sword. And he says, hold then my sword and turn away thy face while I do run upon it. So don't look at me while I kill myself. This is sort of like Cassius's thing where he covered his face. He didn't want to be seen in pain. He says, wilt thou, Strato? Will you do it? And finally someone says yes. Strato says, give me your hand first. Like, shake my hand before I do this. Fare you well, my lord. Goodbye. And Brutus responds, farewell, good Strato. 
So this is his last goodbye, his last handshake. And with that, just like Cassius before him, he runs onto the sword and is killed. And just like Cassius, he has last words as he's dying. And just like Cassius, it's addressed to the same person. He says, Caesar, now be still. This is what he's wanted the whole time. Be still, like be silent. Stop haunting us and go to your rest. Nope, that's not going to happen. Caesar's immortal now and you made him that way. He just wants this ghost to shut up. But unfortunately, Caesar's ghost is going to be the dominant force in Roman politics long after him. He says, I killed not thee with half so good a will. Half so good a will, like half as much eagerness or desire. So I didn't kill you with even half as much eagerness as I killed myself just now. Which in some ways is technically true. Remember, he saw Caesar's killing as a necessary evil. He really liked the guy in many ways. He's much more proud to kill himself than he was to kill Caesar. And with that, Brutus dies. And notice he also has a rhyming couplet right at the end of his life. It's a nice marker not only of the end of a scene, but of the end of a human life. And in this case, the most consequential life in this play. And again, just as he dies, in comes Antony's army. So it's Antony and Octavius, and also Brutus's men who have been captured. Remember Messala and Lucilius and all those guys. And they come in and Octavius asks Messala, what man is that? Presumably he's asking about Strato. And Messala responds, my master's man. Man here like manservant. So he's Brutus's servant. And he asks him, Strato, where is thy master? And Strato responds, free from the bondage you are in, Masala. Bondage meaning servitude or slavery. So where is he? He's free from the slavery you're in because you were captured. The conquerors can but make a fire of him, for Brutus only overcame himself, and no man else hath honor by his death. The conquerors, the people who won this battle, can but make a fire of him. Interesting, all they can do is light him on fire. They can't do anything else. Remember, a pyre was how they did funerals for important Romans. You can't bring him back to Rome as a prisoner. You can't humiliate him. All you can do is light him on fire and go home. For Brutus only overcame himself. You could almost switch the order of Brutus and only. Like Brutus alone, only Brutus, and no one else, overcame himself. Overcame like conquered or defeated. The only person who could defeat Brutus was Brutus. And you know, that's actually a great motto for the play. Brutus just kept defeating himself. And no man else hath honor by his death. No one's going to gain the honor of killing him, except for Brutus. All the honor of killing Brutus now belongs to Brutus. And Lucilius is proud. He says, so Brutus should be found. I thank thee, Brutus, that thou hast proved Lucilius's saying true. Remember in the last scene that he said when Brutus is found, he will be found like Brutus, like himself? Well, that's the saying he's talking about. So Brutus should be found. Brutus should be found this way, dead at his own hand. And he actually thanks Brutus for proving his saying true. He was actually maybe sort of worried that Brutus wasn't going to live up to it. And Octavius says, all that served Brutus, I will entertain them. Not like he's going to juggle for them. It means he's going to hire them or employ them. Anyone who worked for Brutus, you work for me now. And he turns to Strato and says, fellow, will thou bestow thy time with me? Bestow means like spend or devote. Will you spend your time with me? Will you work for me? And Strato says, aye, if Masala will prefer me to you. Yes, I will, if Masala here will prefer me, will recommend me to you. And Octavius says, do so, good Masala. Please recommend him to me. But Masala has kind of a weird question before he gives that recommendation. He says, how died my master, Strato? How did Brutus die? And Strato says, I held the sword and he did run on it. And that's enough for Masala. He says, Octavius, then take him to follow thee that did the latest service to my master. Take him on as a follower, hire him. This guy that did the latest service, latest as in last or final, can't do anyone any service after killing them, to my master, to Brutus. So he recommends him specifically because he helped Brutus do that act. 
and Antony has one final speech. He says, this was the noblest Roman of them all. And obviously this is a famous line, but it's interesting that he chooses that word noble again. I think on one hand, Antony definitely respects Brutus. But on the other hand, it's very important at this kind of fragile time, right after a civil war, to kind of toe this party line, that he really was a noble guy. Especially if he wants all of Brutus's soldiers on his side now. Was Brutus actually the noblest Roman? Well, he talked about it a lot. I don't know. What do you think? And then he's explaining why he thought that Brutus was so noble. He says, All the conspirators, save only he, did that they did in envy of great Caesar. So all the other conspirators, save except for only him, did that they did, in other words, did what they did, in envy of great Caesar. And this could be envy in our modern sense of jealousy, or in the older sense of malice. So either they were jealous of him, or they were genuinely malicious towards Caesar. So what he's saying is that Brutus was the only one who didn't actually hate Caesar, or want anything from him. Well, maybe. I mean, Brutus sure talked a lot about his noble motives. He only, in a general, honest thought, and common good to all, made one of them. So he only, only him, in a general, honest thought. Honest here more like honorable. And the general here is like universal or public. So he had a thought of public honor, of doing something honorable for the public. And common good to all. Common good like good for everyone. Good for the public made one of them. Made one means joined up with. Became one of them, you might say. So this is a really interesting theory, and it really backs up how Brutus had been talking about his plot. It's in some ways a recapitulation of Brutus's funeral speech. I only did this for the good of Rome. He's backing up that official line. Because Brutus is no longer a danger to him, Brutus is dead. So he did what he did. He joined in that conspiracy because he had the greater good of Rome in mind. And he says, his life was gentle, and the elements so mixed in him that nature might stand up and say to all the world, this was a man. His life was gentle. Gentle can also mean noble, that important word. And the elements, these are the four elements whose balance was supposed to govern all of human temperament. Well, they're so mixed in him. In other words, they're so balanced in him because whenever anything was wrong with someone, it was because their elements were out of balance. But he's saying they were in perfect balance in Brutus. That nature might stand up and say to all the world, this was a man. Like nature itself could announce to the entire world that this is what a man is supposed to be. I mean, this is really high praise. Again, it's hard to tell how sincere Antony is. I mean, I think he respected Brutus, definitely. But I think he's also saying this in part for political reasons. Remember, he needs all of Brutus's men, many of whom are still alive and still Roman, back on his side for the future. He's trying to heal things here. This is all about appearance, again, about PR. And that would be a great way to end the play, except Octavius wants to have the last word. He says, according to his virtue, let us use him with all respect and rites of burial. So according to his virtue, which you just laid out, because he's virtuous, let us use him. In other words, treat him with all respect and rites of burial. Let's bury him like someone as important as he was. They're going to give him a full honorable funeral. He's not going to be treated like the enemy. Again, it's important for his men to see them being good. And he says, within my tent, his bones tonight shall lie, most like a soldier, ordered honorably. So inside my tent, and Octavius is an important guy. We're not just going to throw him out of here. And more to the point, not like Cassius, we're not going to take him to some island out of the way. His bones, in other words, his body or his corpse shall lie, most like a soldier. That's how a soldier deserves to be buried. Ordered honorably. Ordered here means like dealt with. We're going to treat him honorably. Again, the words noble and honor are all over their last two speeches here. And he has one final rhyming couplet to end the play. He says, So call the field to rest, and let's away to part the glories of this happy day. 
So call the field to rest. Call the battlefield, or even the army that fights on the battlefield, to rest, to peace, to stop. Because once Brutus is captured, that's it. The battle's over. So he's saying, let's put a stop to this. Let's announce the end of the battle. No more fighting. And let's away. Let's go away to part the glories of this happy day. Oh, this is really interesting. Part the glories is like divide up the spoils. Everything they won in battle, they're going to divide between the people who were victorious. Of this happy day, notice not our modern sense of happy, meaning joyful, much more like fortunate. Like it's not a happy day for Brutus's side. It's just fortunate that we won. And this is really an interesting omen right at the end of the play that they're not talking about unification. They're talking about division, dividing up the spoils. And when Shakespeare does get around to Antony and Cleopatra in about five years, you'll see division starting to open up between Antony and Octavius. So you have a play that ends with a clear victory for one side, but it's a little ambiguous because dissension is on the horizon. And with that, the play ends. And I will admit, some of the interpretations I've given you are a little unorthodox. Often when you learn this play, especially in school, it'll be all about Brutus the noble hero. I'm a little skeptical of Brutus as a pure noble hero. I think what I like about him as a character, and he really is in many ways the main character of this play, is some of the difference between what he does and what he says. I mean, Shakespeare is fascinated with people who say one thing and then act in kind of a different way, and not necessarily the best way. So I really love watching what Brutus does, because he and almost everyone in the play talk about him as being incredibly noble and honorable, and in many ways he is, but in other ways he's very vain. He has real shortcomings as a general and as a planner. Appearance is really important to him, but I do think he genuinely cared about his country. So what I enjoy about this play is how ambiguous that all is. That you have all these people trying ostensibly to do the best thing for their country, but all this personal stuff underneath keeps going at the same time. And what I love about this play and a lot of Shakespeare's plays is that there isn't just one interpretation. Maybe you see Brutus as an entirely noble guy who just gets steered wrong. Maybe you see him as totally craven, a total hypocrite. I don't know. I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. But I hope now that you know what they're talking about, you form strong opinions of your own. So that's the end of Clear Shakespeare, Julius Caesar. Thank you for making it all the way through the play with me. And remember, I've just tried to give you the meanings of these words as best I can. There may be a reading of mine that you disagree with, and cool, that's fine. I've given you a few of my personal opinions, and I fully expect you to argue with them. If you want to find me on the internet somewhere and say, I think you're totally wrong about Brutus, come at me, bro, by all means do. Because now, as a great man once said, the power is yours. All I've tried to give you here is a very close look at the language, just making it as clear to you as possible. But right now, it's still very much just words on a page. And if you're going to bring it alive, either by reading it or by performing it, you're going to have to make it intensely personal for yourself. You're going to have to have your own opinions about these words, really specific opinions based on really specific words. Again, being general is the enemy. And that's just reading. It goes double if you're working to produce the play, because you have to decide how you personally, as an actor, would say these words in these particular moments. Hey, look, if you want to reshuffle the scenes or cut characters out or just cast women, or just cast men, or set it in Bavaria. I don't know. Do it. Go with God. But you have to promise me one thing, that everything they say has to be deeply rooted in this language. No big long swaths of meaningless recitation. No explaining on stage. Ugh, that's the worst. Make these words profoundly yours, and then just say them as though they were the only words you could say at that moment. This podcast has been all about what these people are saying and how they're saying it, But that's only a starting point. That's just the what's and the hows. 
Go digging for the whys, those hidden motivations that are living underneath the language. You got to find a way to speak these words that sounds like you are saying them. So find your own weird reading, your personal interpretation, because anything that's grounded both in the text and in you, in your soul, can never be wrong. It's going to feel real and true. Now, anything that's general and vague, anything that's based on someone else's idea of 400 years of tradition, well, look, that's going to be DOA. It's going to be dead and fake and a waste of everyone's time. That's why people think this is boring, because it doesn't feel like it belongs to them. Whoever you are, if you're a teenage kid somewhere in West Philadelphia, if you're a retired machinist in Texas, if you're a professor in India, if you're an actor in South Africa, whoever you are, this stuff can belong to you. But you have to meet its opinion with your opinion. Because all literature is basically a chemical reaction. You know, the author puts out words into the world, but the reaction is only complete when a reader or an audience reads or hears those words. Great works are really only great when the reader sees a moment or a word and says, oh my god, I recognize that feeling in myself. Otherwise, you know, why bother? My hope is that this Clear Shakespeare podcast has helped to clear away some of the barriers to reading Shakespeare's plays in the same way that you would any other book or play. And I realize that might not be possible. It's a long time since 1599. But you can't say I didn't try. I really appreciate you listening all the way with me. I'll make one last appeal. Creating and recording and editing and hosting these podcasts takes a ton of time and some money. So I'd really appreciate any money you could kick in to make this possible. Go to clearshakespeare.com support. There's at least two ways you can contribute. I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. I would love to keep making these. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.